This is the Biblical Mind Podcast, produced by the Center for Hebraic Thought. Honest five-star reviews help others find this podcast. Visit the magazine at thebiblicalmind.org for articles and videos that explore the deep structures of Scripture. Um, for me, um, the idea of being a Christian and, and, and an artist, those, those terminologies are inextricable. Um, for me, um, is because I'm first and foremost, I believe that I'm a Christian. And as an artist, you know, I, I love to just borrow some of the words from a, from a friend that passed away a couple of years ago uh, by the name of Chris Overboard. And he basically said that, you know, God didn't make him to be an artist, but to use his art to draw people closer to God. Hmm. And so I definitely see my work um, through the lens of a calling and that um, I knew that I wanted to be an artist since I was five years old. And so that calling, that bug was in me um, at a very early age, you know, as a little kid um, drawing and creating, you know, growing up in New Orleans. Mm-hmm. And um, I grew up Catholic. And so I went from Catholic schools from kindergarten through college. And so I just remember very keenly, you know, that path of, you know, being a Christian and learning the craft of being an artist, um, those things were totally intertwined. And so very much I look at the idea of being a creator, um, being a maker of things, you know, in a, in a very small, very minuscule way, you know, we, we're reflective of God, the creator, God, the maker of all things. Hmm. And so this idea of being able to see something from nothing, to be able to take a blank page or to take clay or to take the earth around us and reshape it we give the people the ability to you know to see and to see differently Mm. and those those are some of the things that i just as an artist as a creator as a christian i see those things those concepts as indestructible they're they're all connected understand that the art world is a very, um, it's its own place, it's its own sociology. Um, I've known friends who've gone to art schools, art colleges, and they tell me, sometimes tell me horror stories. Uh, some, some of them loved it and some of them had a very difficult time in those places. Mm-hmm. So I wonder how, um, how was your training as an artist uh, along the way? Like, uh, did that sharpen your thinking uh, about scripture and, and Christian Christianity? Did it muddy the waters uh, or was it a mixed bag? Uh, for me, and I, I think so much of my journey has been just been about my perspective. Hmm. And I think uh, so much of it has to do with the upbringing that I had. And, you know, growing up in, like I said, growing up in New Orleans and the household I was in, it was a very, it was a faith-centered home. And um, everything we did uh, was was girded with prayer, hmm. and it was girded by uh, the faith walk that we that we did, and so I looked at everything through that lens. And so when I, I when I remember going through art school when I was in um, undergrad, you know, I went to Xavier University, and you know, at no point where you know, of course, it's a Christian college uh, where we're at, and not all the professors you know profess to be right. Christian, and um, and they didn't have to. You know, so, um, but the work that I wanted to do uh, was definitely very well steeped in terms of my faith. 
and that experience. And I think about growing up African-American um, in this nation, um, I, I look back through history, you know, I look at the civil rights era and I look at it and see very keenly how faith was undergirding and so much, so much undergirding the, the protests and mm -hmm. what was the foundation for people going out into the streets and doing the work that they did, standing on the front lines and taking all those brunts. You know, then I remember getting to grad school and I was up at Michigan State. And again, now now I'm going to a public institution, you know, 40,000 plus, you know, mm. I just left from an institution that had 2,500 students. So it was a bit of a shock to my to my system. But one of the things that I remember there, again, I was honing, again, my faith and building that into my work. And um, I did it unapolog unapologetically mm. and in such a way that um, I was not trying to hit people over the head with it. You know, basically say, well, you need to be saved. And, you know, I wasn't doing it from that way. I did it from the standpoint of that when I spoke about my work and I talked about just the, the beauty of drawing or the beauty of carving or beauty of making something out of clay, shaping and forming, I looked at that through very much a sacred lens. Mm -hmm. And so when I shared the symbols and the symbology or the scriptures and things that was tied into my work, again, it was inextricable to who I was. So it's like, you know, I've taught in public institutions. I've taught in, you know, private institutions. I've taught in all these different spaces, uh, K through 12 um, schools. And I've never changed that voice in terms of who I am and, and or the calling upon my life. And um, so I will always speak through the artwork. And that mm. became my way in which I can talk about any virtually any subject because I was using that as that as that hinge point. And so I, I think it's been about the way in which I delivered that has not caused me to receive any kind of flack wherever I've been, um, no matter what setting I've been in, whether it be a sacred setting or whether it been a secular setting. I remain being Steve Prince. And I, I say call, I ask people to accept me for who I am in the fullness of who I am. Hmm. And uh, that's, that's important. Do you feel that uh, being raised Roman Catholic, uh, I, I'm, you say R Roman Catholic in New Orleans, and I'm thinking there's a lot of imagery in that world. Um, there's a lot of art just built into that world. Do you feel like that shaped you as an artist in any way, or did, did you react to that? I mean, I can imagine some people might go the other way uh, in their art <laughs> if they didn't like that style or whatever. But do you, do you feel that it had an impact on you? No, oh, absolutely. Had a, a, you know, growing up, growing up, you know, Roman Catholic had a profound impact upon me. Um, you know, for several years, I was an altar boy, hmm. and um, so I remember in my, you know, you know, we we basically call it elementary school, so K through eight, hmm. and then high school was nine through twelve um, in the Catholic school system. So you know, I we didn't have a middle. I didn't go to like quote unquote middle school. Um, so. Um, I just remember just how profoundly the church impacted me, just the symbols that are there. I mean, think about it. You know, our church was like a little mini cathedral that we used to go to. It was called St. Raphael. And I remember walking in there and just walking in this cavernous womb-like structure. I remember the hard wooden benches that were all so beautifully crafted with the little end filigree there. I remember the marble floors and the marble columns that cascaded up to the sky. The stained glass windows that when the sun shone on certain parts of the church, it would, it would just kind of bathe us with these colors um, inside there. I remember the smell of incense hmm. um, in that space. I remember the way in which you would make a sound and the way in which the, 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 the priest's voice would echo when they were standing on the pulpit. 
you know. And then I remember what it was like going from the congregational space and going up on the altar and now putting on this white robe and putting on this tasseled belt and, you know, ringing the bells at those key moments or, or bringing out the, the host or the, 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 uh, the wine, or which, uh, which was the blood of Christ, bringing it to the priest and for him to consecrate it during the service. You know, all those symbology, symbols. And I remember the statues of Mary and, you know, Joseph and, um, and Jesus upon the cross and the blood that they would put on the sculpture mm-hmm. that was trickling from his wrist and from his feet and from his side. You know, all these symbols have built into my, into my work. And um, that I've drawn from. And then just the stories. And now you think about in terms of the Catholic Church, you know, there's a lot of apocryphal stories, you know, stories that weren't canonized. And I remember being exposed to them like St. Sebastian, you know, you know, and then later on in my life when I actually left the Catholic Church and I went to the Simmons of God churches, you know, that story of St. Sebastian is not, is nowhere in the scriptural talk. There's nowhere in the conversation. You know, but again, I remember those stories. I remember those many narratives because we made plays and things that were based upon these kinds of things. And again, all that stuff is filtering in and is building that rich vocabulary that, you know, I know I have now um, that being able to go through that experience and go through Zelda experiences that I've that I've gone through in terms of my faith walk. Wow, there's so much there that you just put on the table uh, that we could explore. But I. I I can't help but wonder if uh, are you, if you're teaching students of art that it, it, thinking of Christians coming from non-denominational churches in California where they don't even know what a denomination is and they meet in cushioned seats that they set up and tear down in the hotel or whatever, like that's a very different experience of church. And I wonder if that if you see in any way in which there's a uh, I, I'm avoiding the word distorted imagination, but just a different different imagination about the arts and expressing expressing art Christianly, um, uh, based on that kind of encounter with art. Because in a cathedral, no matter what, what, no matter what you think of the cult of of the worship, right? I don't mean cult in a bad way. I just mean like mm-hmm. the style of worship and what happens in there. Everything is crafted. Uh, every seat is crafted. Every pillar is crafted. Every like you see skill and craftsmanship everywhere you look in those spaces. Mm-hmm. Um, so I wonder if you see a difference in students who come out of those various uh, church backgrounds. Um, absolutely. I, I think the biggest difference that I see, um, you know, people come from different faith practices. Um, there are so many people that have kind of gone against all that crafting that Mm. takes place in the church. And basically, in many instances, there is a resistance to it because they begin to say things like, well, all that crafting that you're doing in the church is actually distracting to God or distracting on your focus to God. Mm. So many, I've been in spaces where they've cleaned the slate. And so they don't want these things to be where we kind of fall in love with the icon Mm. or the iconography. And um, so there is that kind of tension. And then... There's this other space in terms of, you know, working with students that, um, you know, that I worked with over the years, you know, coming from certain spaces where there wasn't a strong um, uh, biblical teaching or a, a, um, a Bible study. And I would say that was that has been like a majority of students that I've encountered that they've come from. A lot of people have come from these traditions where there wasn't. Um, like a real, like a class study where the church is grappling with what the scripture mm. is saying and how is that word speaking to them right now. 
And um, and so I remember when I got out of grad school, and one of the first churches I went to was an Assemblies of God's Church in D.C. And that was one of the things that I, I felt that I was deficient in, in terms of coming up through all that Catholicism that I came through. I just felt like I just didn't know God for myself. Um, I felt like I didn't spend enough time studying the Word and trying mm-hmm. to really understand, you know, what is the Old Testament saying and what is the New Testament saying, you know, and what what is Christ saying and and what do those parables mean? You know, I was just trying to just get understanding, and um, and so I remember um, the church that I was attending. It was so focused on that Bible study. And matter of fact, the Bible study in many instances, many many Sundays, was better than the actual service. Mm-hmm. Matter of fact, I rather I had rather stand in for those extra two hours that we did for a church service to stay just in that. I mm-hmm. I couldn't wait to get back the next week to have that conversation. And we would, it'd be so rich that it'd be bouncing around the room and everybody had their hand up and they wanted to say something and we just had to stop it, you yeah. know, because we had to move on to the surface. I'm like, no, stay right here. <laughs> no, stay right here. Stay right now. Let's, let's not move off of that. You know, let's finish this conversation. And in many instances, it was almost like an argument, but um, it wasn't because it was, it was people grappling, really just tussling with that word. And, and really pushing for understanding based upon things that there was happening in their, their daily lives or their daily walk that they were drawing from, but also just looking at it from a contextual standpoint and trying to really exegize that word and trying to find out, well, what is that origin of that word? Where does it come from? What is the context that is meaning in the time when it was said versus what it means right now? How right. is that word moved and translated over time? You know, And so should we go back home? And should we going back in the concordance and we looking up things and we we taking other Bibles, we're looking at NIV version, we're looking at King James version, reading the different ways. It was just so rich. It was so rich. It was so full. And um, I never forget those days, um, you know, of, of, of that study. And that, again, foundationally is just built in my work is that way of looking and looking again and 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 tearing that word apart and thinking about it in many different contexts but also saying how does that word is a, how is that word alive to us right now today mm. how is it operating you know and um and 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 away from what i've heard from students who will say stuff like that what well, that's you know that was speaking to those people or those are old words old messages and mm. it's not relevant today you know so those kind of things yeah i i am so glad was what kind of a church was that that we, that was, was happening the, those assemblies of god Okay. So I became a Christian in an ex-Assemblies of God church, but all the flavor was there. And so like you were describing, I had the same experience, same atmosphere. Like, you know, these were, they were all blue collar people, not a doctor or lawyer in the bunch. Mm-hmm. Um, but they were all reading Josephus on the side. They were, had the concordance. They, like they were trying as hard as they could and they, and they knew scripture. They knew it yes. really well. Um, <laughs> and even when I became a Christian, or when I became a Christian in that church, I came back as a, they encouraged me to go to seminary. I worked as a pastor there. Mm-hmm. Those depression era people, they held me accountable to the text and they knew even after seminary, they knew a lot more <laughs> about scripture than I did. Uh, I knew the technical stuff, but they knew scripture so well. And it was yeah. such an enriching environment. Mm-hmm. So, um, that idea that, that you're wrestling, you know, if, if we could move that wrestling with scripture in that community and now say, Steve Prince, do you use your art to also wrestle with scripture and to join and to join people to wrestle with scripture? Absolutely. Um, one of the things that I grew up in New Orleans and, and I'm, I, I'm, I'm gonna tell a double line story. 
um, growing up in New Orleans, there's there's this thing called the jazz funeral, hmm. and the jazz funeral um, is is a funeral that's broken up into two parts. Um, the first part of the funeral is called the dirge. Um, the dirge is a mournful tune that is played for someone being laid to rest, and so musicians would play sounds and music that would purposely get the people to crowd to pour out because it's a necessary part of of mourning of mm -hmm. um, of of dealing with uh, loss. But once that person they process that body to the gravesite, the music moves from a mournful tune into a celebratory tune. And it is called that particular music is called the second line. Hmm. Now, all these things have different meanings. And when you hear the word second line, it brings to mind, well, well what is the first line? Well, the first line is your life here on earth. Um, the second line is the afterlife. Um, it's the place where we transfer from this world into. But also it has a natural meaning, too, because the first line is the family is associated with the person who's being laid to rest, whereas the second line is the community that comes out and girds the first line in mm. support. And so that's the friends. That's the, the, um, the, the people that have been grafted in and called family mm. um, that come out. And they come out and support because they know that, that that family that lost is going through a really, really tough moment. And we just want to come out and support. So I, I love all those concepts, you know, because... You know, I've taken that idea of the dirge in the second line. And I look at through my artwork through that lens, and I look at Christ through that lens. You know, it's both a dirge and a second line. Right, right, right. <laughs> you know, and and to think about his life in terms of what he did in the march and and the profound effect that he's had upon Earth. You know, you know, being made flesh, and then the the his crucifixion. And just the just the brutal nature of what took place and for him to die upon that cross for all of our sins. And then that resurrection, that's that second line. Hmm. So I've been pushing for that in my work is like, how can we grapple with the dirge? The dirge meaning that becomes the everyday things that we grapple with um, as human beings. And then how can we move to a second line while we're still alive? And I, I, I oftentimes use the story of the prodigal son as that hmm. symbol. And it's it's that's the dirge on the second line, right? Right there, right. it's in that that story is is it's a story of redemption. It's a story of renewal. It's a story of uh, of a second life. Yeah, you know, with that son in his separation from that family, but ultimately it's the son in his separation from God, and his strand away. But God is there, ready, re waiting, and ready for us, and it will run to us <laughs> yeah. when we are ready. And we call upon him. And that's, again, he's using that earthly father as right. this idea, but it is it is the heavenly father that he's speaking, that he's speaking of. And so I just love the richness of that story because of the multiple layers of it. And so that's also the same thing with the dirge in the second line. There is a richness of it in terms of, of the natural, but there's a richness of that same story of the supernatural. Hmm. And those two are working in concert with each other. So that's where my work hinges off of that same idea. That I can deal with, you know, the story that happened with Trayvon Martin, you know, down in Florida, who, you know, gets killed and he has, you know, last things we remember him with is a pack of Skittles and a Arizona tea. You know, I, I can reflect upon, you know, and go back in time. I can think about what happens with the life of an Emmett Till, you know, when 
he gets killed down in Money, Mississippi for, you know, reckless eyeballing or whistling at a, a white woman. And, you know, his kid from, from Chicago is 14 years old and he gets abducted from his home and beaten and lynched and tied with an engine block and thrown into a lake. That's a dirge story. Mm-hmm. But with the mother, when his body gets exhumed three days later and gets sent back to Chicago, the mother says, I do not want to have a closed casket for my child. I mm-hmm. want the whole world to see what they've done to my baby. That's what we did as we are, we bear witness to what the whole what the world did to Christ. Hmm. And then this child, the child doesn't come back, but what the mother does is it wakes up the consciousness of a people to understand of the atrocities that are happening to our youth and to people of a darker hue in this land and what is happening to us and that it called them to step up to try to go against those 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 issues that create race and create separation and create these hierarchies societally and how do we break those cycles that's what um, uh, Mamie Till does in reference to her son Emmett Till she took that natural and she had us grapple with it in the supernatural Yeah, I mean, I even as you're speaking, I think of so many of uh, my Jewish friends, uh, and these are Jewish thinkers who would say, like, this is actually the story of Scripture, is that it's um, it's the reversal of the expected. This is what you think it's going to be, and then it's reversed, and that's actually the, the nugget that carries you through Scripture. Mm-hmm. I, w- I was going to ask you, and I, I kind of want to look at a particular uh, image, because I'm a I'm an Old Testament Hebrew Bible guy. That's where I get. That's where I get all jazzed up. Um, I love it all, but that's where I get most excited. And uh, you have this. I don't know if it's a woodcut or a lino cut, but um, uh, of Genesis, uh, maybe Genesis two is what it's called, or Genesis. Yeah, I think it must be Genesis two or three. And it's the couple laying in bed. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, I have so many questions here, um, but. I want to talk about the physicality of this. Uh, a, we'll, we'll put, if with your permission, we'll put an, uh, a link to this image on the show notes so okay. people can see it for themselves. But um, this, there, when we say lino cut, this, there are a, a lot of lines cut. <laughs> there, yeah. there is a, this is a very, and a, a lot of the images I saw of yours are very, um, I'm trying to not use the word busy, but they have a lot of energy in them. Mm-hmm. And and all I think, th- again, that my mind is all about like conserving energy at my age. Um, like I'm thinking, what is animating him to make all to put all that energy and convert all that energy into this image? So like, what what makes you make all of those cuts? If the, I, th- th- I don't know if that question makes any sense, but what animates that force, <laughs> that energy? Well, well, one of the first things you talk about the p- piece is called um, Genesis um, colon um, in the beginning. That's the yeah. name. Of it. That's okay. the full title of that piece, and it is a linoleum cut. And linoleum cut for those people who do not know what it is. It's a uh, process where you're working with a floor tile like material that was created and generated around right around World War II, and it is a material that's made up of um, um, linseed oil, cork, and flax. And of course, I'm, that's 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 me on the technical side of of knowing what the material is. But what you end up doing is you make an intricate drawing on the surface of this material, which is um, the the material I love to use is called battleship gray. Hence, they use it as a flooring on battleships. 
And um, so you draw into the surface and I use Sharpie markers and I draw all over the surface. And then I use very specialized cutting tools that are designed for cutting woodcut. And then they're in the shape of V's and the shape of U's. And I carefully remove the negative space around those positive lines so that the negative space, the parts I didn't draw on, will actually be lower than the surface. Hmm. Hence, the print, the print process is in a family called relief prints. Hmm. Now, what's key about it is, is that a lot of the energy and the lines and the marks that I'm making inside of the composition to, derive, to arrive at making a piece, sometimes I'm trying to show you a sense of volume. So if I want to show something that's on a two-dimensional surface, which is completely flat, but I want to make it appear to be biometric, there's several things that you can do. One you can do is by creating a series of diagonals or creating a sense of perspective space, hmm. you know, or to give the illusion that there's depth. But another thing is, is that I'm creating cross-contoured lines on the surface of the form to, to give the illusion of volume. So when you look at those characters and look at those figures, you see the legs, you see the arms, you see the face, and they all handle with these lines that are cross crossing the body and is to give the figures flesh, is to give them body, give them volume and so forth. Um, the piece that I did, I, I, I was grappling with this uh, series. I keep using that word grapple, but that's what I think, that's what I think study is. That's what I think is, is going into those harder spaces. That's what I think the dirge is. It's, it's about that level of work. And so my work, my artwork is reflective of that, that journey. Because think about it. When I'm in the studio and I'm creating and I'm making, I'm not only thinking about the scriptural content that's being imbued within the piece, I'm also thinking about the narrative, a story that I'm mm -hmm. trying to tell about the everyday that we all encounter. But I'm, I'm also in that space, I'm, I am physically making the marks and they are marks of memory that's mm -hmm. being made. So each stroke is like a, is like a line of text. It's like a chapter of information. So whenever that image is in front of me, people are always amazed by the fact that I'm able to just kind of go through that piece in this really intimate, intricate way. And he's like, how do you remember all that story? And I'm saying, I don't. I'm reading a piece. Mm. <laughs> I'm literally reading a piece because the piece is, is text. Hmm. It is the text made into this visual form. It goes into that idea when people say that a picture is worth a thousand words. It's true. You know, one snapshot can tell you volumes of information. You know, how much information is being told when we see the image of Christ on the cross in the mm. church? Volumes of information is being told. And so that piece, I called it um, Genesis in the beginning. There's a couple laying on the bed. And the, the, the man is, he's got a book and it's open. And on the cover of the book, it says prelude. <laughs> you know, just the word alone. It's like something before, something to come. And then the woman has an Apple computer. Right. <laughs> you know, the Apple, hence yeah. the, the computer in this context, in our current context, is our space of, of, um, of temptation. There's so much stuff. I mean, yeah, the computer is this beautiful, powerful tool, but yet it is this really damaging, separating tool that has been so divisive within our world. Mm-hmm. But yet it's been so incredibly connective. Like, I mean, you and I are connected right now in a computer. Right. Two apples, <laughs> as, it, as it were. <laughs> yes. And, and we're, using, we're using this computer to make this connection. But yet, how much more beautiful it is if you and I were sitting in a room together. Right. 
you know, to sit so I can, you can read my body language. I can read your body, your full body language, the embodiment of breathing the same air together to look at each other and see each other's skin and hair texture and all that stuff that you miss. The computer takes away strips from, mm. you know, but yet it's beautiful that you and I can see each other right now. That's a powerful thing beyond us just simply talking on the phone. Right. That's a whole nother level of separation, you know? So it's like, it's the beauty of technology, but it's also the separation of technology that it does and um, that it has. And so all that's comp- contained in that fact that that woman has a computer while the couple is in a bed. But I'll also show you another line of the connection because the woman's leg is draping over the man's leg. And it's this very intimate touch that right. is being displayed between the two. And if you look a little carefully, there is a bottle of wine beside the bed and mm. a glass there. And that alludes to the way in which Christ does his first miracle, which is he basically turns the water into wine. And so that's another allusion to Christ symbolically within the structure. And then you got to be really, really, really careful to pick up on the fact that I use another concept of the woman with the issue of blood and she makes her way through the crowd and she touches Christ at the hem of his garment. And if you look at the background on one side, there's a curtains and the curtains actually make up the bottom of Christ's um, clothing and his mm. feet are draping down below it. And I put some feet down in there and actually there's a couple of holes in the feet. It's really, really, really subtle inside of the composition. I'm looking right now and um, I will try to find that. Yeah, it's uh, it's, <laughs> it's a, really it's subtle. Right, I think it's on the right hand side of the composition. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. Right? There's these feet. And they're very, very stylized, but they're two feet dropping down from it. And those are Christ's feet tied to that garment. And what I was doing was, when you think about it, um, I, I got the Genesis, the beginning, and then I got Christ, who, uh, who has been terminized. Termin- uh, the terminology associated with Christ is that he's the second Adam. Hmm. And so that's why I got both of them happening. This guy that's in the bed, he represents... Adam, that's us. We you know we represent you know in this flesh that we have this the limitations of our body um, and so forth, but also the presence of Christ. You know to come is where we we um, we offer up our thanks and our thanksgiving. It's where we offer up our confession for how we have fallen short and our confession for our sins, and then Christ becomes the fulfillment. You know, so all that's embedded within the image. And it's a very simple image. It's just a couple in the bed. But all that is 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 comprised in the idea of these couples um, laying together at the end of the night, reading a book, going back to the the, the materiality, but also also in the same moment, this modern element, this thing that's unknown, that's still morphing and evolving right before our eyes, mm-hmm. you know. <laughs> and it's a single frame. I mean, as a biblical scholar who's written quite a bit on Genesis one through three or two and three specifically, I'm I'm sitting here thinking, well, how did this guy who went to art school uh, and didn't do all the training I did, how did he figure? Because I like I could geek out on lots of things that I think you're making deeper connections on. Um, mm-hmm. But when you said you read the te- read it like a text, I think I have to read it like a text too because it's so visually rich. Um, there's so many lines, right? Um, that actually you almost you have to f- follow the lines very closely, even to see that her foot is almost acrobatically, you know, hooking around onto her husband, and his yes. legs are almost 
almost like an anatomical, you know, it's almost like you can see down into his flesh, into his muscles, you know? Um, yeah. And it's so, and they're here. And I love, I love the fact that, uh, and he was with her, right? So none of this is happening with him, as we often imagine the story, him off doing something else, but it's all happening with them together. And yes, yeah, so there's so many things going on here. Um, and, and so this is, you know, this is, this is the kind of thing, and I, I'm actually going to use this in my class next semester, because mm-hmm. you put an object on the screen, you read the text, and you look at this single frame that, again, you said it's just two people laying in bed, but it's obviously... <laughs> I can tell it's, it's a lot more than that. And then you can just go back and forth between the text um, and see what's going on. And, and by doing this simple exercise, you're forced to reckon with both how well you've exegeted the text or what, what you wanted to bring out in the text, which the text has offers lots of different insights. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it also gives a voice to the biblical authors because now we're, we're actually listening to them more closely than we would have. I like the heart, the hardest thing I have to do as a, Bible professor in a Christian college is get students to read the text closely and to read a text like that, that they've heard so many times to pay attention to what it's actually saying. So Mm -hmm. for me, this is like liquid gold, um, these, (laughs) these kind of frames and this kind of art. And, Mm -hmm. um, and so I encourage everybody to go look at these, uh, these images, um, because they're, they're incredible. And they're, there's just a lot of, I'm, again, I'm trying to avoid cliche terms, but these are very powerful images. They're very visceral. They, they don't leave you unaffected by them. Um, Absolutely. I want to uh, come back to what you talked about, Emmett Till, Trayvon Martin, and others. Um, being raised in New Orleans, uh, I think you and I are probably around the same age, um, but I imagine uh, you've seen some stuff. Uh, there's been a long discussion. The reason I actually started this series discussing uh, issues with artists is because I came very interested in the question for Christians. There was this question, should we tear down monumental art that is dedicated to people who, in the end, we don't think are that great of people? And a lot of this monumental art, of course, was thrown up in the 1960s during the civil rights uh, ch- very cheaply as it happens. Um, they're, they're very cheaply made statues, which is apparently why they crumble so easily when they were taken down. Mm-hmm. But um, my question was not whether we should put monuments of Robert E. Lee or, or Jefferson Davis or something up. It, that, the, those seem to have more obvious answers to me, but <laughs> <laughs> should Christians ever make a monument of any human being at all? Um, maybe except for Jesus, like, is there room for that? Now, the Jewish answer to that to the tra- through the tradition is, no, we should never make a three-dimensional uh, uh, art, art, artistic, de- no depiction of three in three dimensions, but they did mosaics where they had two-dimensional, uh, and, and or so your lino cuts and your wood cuts would count as two-dimensional. Mm-hmm. I wonder, as somebody who's raised in the South uh, and who is an artist, have you thought much about public art and its function um, in the discussions that we're all finally struggling with as a nation out loud rather than just bearing it under the, in the rug. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's, that's a really rich and um, complex question that you're asking. And it's, it's a lot of things that um, I, I am thinking about, I have thought about, and um, I am challenging others to, mm-hmm. uh, um, to think about as well. Um, I guess in short, what um, I guess the first line of response to that is, um, I, I'm also two. I'm a two-dimensional and three-dimensional artist, hmm. and um, I have created a bust um, of an individual. And um, one thing I, I know about us as people is that you know we're we're complicated, 
And um, we're complicated in that, you know, I think we have all the elements of good and bad all in us that's embodied in each and every person. Um, I mean, you can go that you can go through history and you can go ahead and look at these people that we can idolize and we can hold on high pedestals and think about them and all the wonderful and great things that they did. But at the same token, you can look at that same person in through a very complex lens and you see that they have some elements that are not so wholesome, um, that are not so great. And so I can see why people would shy away from putting a, a picture, a, an image or a representation of a person in three dimensions up before people as if to not show the full complex nature of that person or, or, as, or as to champion them in such a way that they get elevated to the point where they get they turn almost get deified. Mm-hmm. Um, and I can see where the fear will be coming at. Um, but I, I think that as, as an artist and as an educator that I am as well, is that um, I, I think that there is a way in which we can look and we can engage work around us, engage the art. And I think that there, there is a space that we must stay in as one is a space of humility um, and a space of groundedness. And, um, you know, I've been a person, you know, pretty well accomplished as a visual artist. Um, I've had some beautiful commissions. I, I sell my work, you know, quite often. Um, and I, I've done pretty well throughout my career. I've done nothing outside of my career um, mm-hmm. as being an artist. I've, wow. There's another job I've held. So my from five years old on, that's it. I made art. <laughs> wow. And I make a living for doing this. Not everybody can say that. No, not everybody can say that. And so I, I know that. And so I, I do not take for granted what I do, nor do I take for granted the gifts that I have um, and, the, and the access that this gift has granted onto me. Hmm. So when we start talking about memorials and all these kind of things, you know, it's very complicated, you know, especially when you talk about American history. Um, and because I'm going to just speak on that because that's what I know. Um, talk about a Jefferson Davis or talk about even Thomas Jefferson, you know, all mm-hmm. these people, we, we look at some of these people as our founding fathers, you know, uh, a George Washington or, or Abraham Lincoln, but their lives were complicated with a whole bunch of other mess. You know, there was a bunch of other skeletons in their closets, you know? And so the, the, the question becomes is, you know, you know, do we tear them down because they had those major skeletons and the damage that was associated with them? Or do we keep them up and we just say, hey, we understand that this person is not, you know, did not do all the quote unquote right things, was not always a good person um, and so forth. And do we have space for forgiveness of that person? And I think that that's what we oftentimes offer in every space. You know, when we go into our churches, you know, we have to not we have to remember to to not just simply put that, you know, of course, we got to hold the, the pastor or the priest to a standard. But you also got to understand that, that person is a human. That person mm-hmm. is flawed, you know. And that person oh, yeah. has problems. That person has issues, and um, just like any other person. And I think that what happens is when we put things on pedestals or we put people in pulpits, we oftentimes we forget, or we put people in the front of a classroom, we forget that they're human first. <laughs> yeah, and that they are tussling, and they got they got things that they got to deal with when they go home behind closed doors that we never see. <laughs> right. You know, and I think that that's what keeps us. I think that's an element that we have we have to constantly remind ourselves of, and not get blinded by the light, blinded by the quote unquote that's 
the, the things that we consider to be so good and so great to the point where that person is just like, oh, they and they do something bad, like, oh my God, I can't believe that they did. You know, that's what we end up saying. Right. <laughs> you know, and it's like, no, it's not surprising that that person may have fallen, that person may fall short, that person may have sinned. All those things, because that is all of us, you know, mm-hmm. and we all, you know, all for all have sinned and, and have fallen short. That's where that's where the scripture becomes in so keen in our understanding of it. And that's how we begin to look at each other through that lens. You know, so that's why I think that becomes so important. You know, um, I'm, I just recently did a sculpture um, that's on this campus where I work at William & Mary. And um, it's a Sankofa. Now, many people don't know what a Sankofa is, but it's an idea. I'm, I don't know what one is. So. Yeah. It comes out of, um, out of Ghana. And hmm. it's a mythical bird that is moving forward and is looking back at the same time. And it's an old adage. Those who forget their past are doomed hmm. to repeat it. Right, right. You know, but this bird is moving forward, thrusting forward with this beautiful confidence, but is looking back and it's remembering. And um, it's, 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 it's passing on a history. It's passing on to its child, its youth. Hmm. And in its mouth, the beak of this bird that I created, is, there's a, a seed or an egg, which is a symbol of that life and new life. And so I, I made this piece, and it's a um, it's uh, ten feet tall. It's four feet square at the base, and um, and there's a column below it that has names of people on it. And the names of people are the first African Americans that were resident, that were students here at William and Mary. Hmm. Now you got to think about this institution was formed in what 1693. All right, this is the second oldest university in the United States. Wow, at Harvard I didn't University. know that. Yeah, okay. And so at this same site, you know, where there was so-called Christians upon this land who were running it, they had slaves that they used right. to build the buildings, cook the food, wash the clothes. There's some complicated stuff there. Right. But yet this is a place of higher education. This is a place where the first law school was created. Hmm. <laughs> you know, put all that into context. Put, that, put all that into your story and then I'll tell the story of William Mary. And then it's like your vision of William & Mary starts to shift almost immediately. It's like, wait a minute, y'all, this place is the second oldest institution in the United States and you're a place of higher education and you've, you've, you've educated hundreds upon thousands of people and and yet you were involved in the institution of enslavement mm-hmm. and you used people to sell some people to keep some students in the school and then you didn't let school students in the school until 1967, about 275 years after the inception of the institution and you put them in Jefferson Hall? All kinds of symbols and symbols wow. is packed yeah. on top of itself. You know, so I put this piece and I made this piece and I I pull all that out. I I take that laundry and I shake it. I show you the stains on the laundry and I put it right before us. And I said, no, we can't hide from the stains. We can't hide from that dirge of a story. Because I believe that in the context of the story, there is a second line. Hmm. There is redemption. There is renewal. And that's what we got to keep remembering that um, even though Adam and Eve fell, there was a redemption down the line that was that was written, that was written at the at at the beginning, that was already written before the before that story as we know it, you know, <laughs> and then to the now, you know. So it's 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 we are the biblical story. scholar all i'm thinking is this is exactly how the biblical authors do it they soberly 
and sourly describe what happened, how the people were, right? How was Israel? How was David? How was uh, Jephthah? I mean, you get it all, all the nasty stuff. <laughs> yes. Uh, and yet God's making <laughs> covenants with these people and saying it's through these schmucks. And you get to the New Testament <laughs> and the disciples are bumbling and don't understand and yes. uh, averse and... It's through you that I'm gonna that I'm gonna bring in this empire, right? So, yes. so it's profoundly along the lines of what Scripture is doing. Although I, I can hear some people that would be afraid and say, like, "Oh, why do we have to talk poorly about these people? Why can't we just celebrate the good things about them?" And I'm like, you know, Oprah mm-hmm. is not right when she's like, "You go, girl," all the time, right? There's got to be a, there's got to be a no, no, you stop, girl. Think about what's happened, right? I'm not accusing Oprah of anything. I don't know. It's a yeah. beautiful. It's a beautiful story. I love yeah. it. <laughs> yeah, our a, a really sober rearview mirror yes. is our best headlights in the darkness. So, and I, I think that uh, the sick sin. What did you call it? Sinkofa. Okay, yeah, Sinkofa. It sounds like an ancient version of that same sentiment. It is. It, well, and, and it's the ancient. It's the ancient version of that same sentiment that has been deposited all around the world. Mm. It's just taken on different shapes and forms in different yeah. cultures. You it's, actually have the exact same thing in uh, Gilgamesh, this Mesopotamian story where he has to const- constantly look back in order to understand what's going forward. Yeah. Yes. And Deuteronomy, <laughs> uh, remember, remember, remember. And Jesus, do this in remembrance of me so that you can understand what's for. Yeah. like it's Yes. It's all, all connected. Yeah. These are, these are, these, I, I like to, what I work from as a visual artist, I work from those biblical principles. They all laid out, and that's why the Bible is so important. That's why it's so alive right now because it's it's so laden and rich with all the um the principles that we have to live by. Mm-hmm. And if we don't if we don't go to the scriptures and see its connection, then we're going to repeat all that mess that people have done for centuries, over and over and over again. I mean, we we're on a cycle. I mean, just as we come into as a cycle in terms of as we go through, you know, go through the, our, our mother and our father, uh, uh, bring us, you know, commingle together and bring about the spark of life that we are. And that life matures in our mother's womb. And then we come out through that middle passage of her body into this world, tethered by this umbilical cord. And we sever that. And the mother continues to feed that child with the rich nurturing uh, life water of milk. To, to give it the enzymes, to protect that child, to give it all those things that it needs. And at the same moment, the mother's being protected because she's getting extra enzymes to protect her so that she can continue to bring about new life. You know, it's, it's the beautiful cycles. Hmm. You know, but in the midst of all those cycles, you know, it's like now we got that child that comes in the world and we're teaching and we're training. I mean, then what it, then what it boils down to is so much mistraining or misteaching that takes right. place <clears throat> um, to that child. And then that child grows up, matures, and has to paint their own way. Yeah. And has to figure it out. Because there is no blueprint to raise a child. There's no say, well, this is how you're going to do it. Yeah. I've got four teenagers. I just want to say a huge amen to that. <laughs> <laughs> and everybody who thinks they got it nailed down, I'm pretty sure you're wrong. <laughs> <laughs> it's impossible. It, it's, it's messy. Is so, it's it's messy. messy. It is yeah. messy. And that's life. Yeah. You know, and so life gets played out to you, the, the biblical truths and the scriptures and everything gets played out over and over. The story keeps going around and around and around. And it's just a cycle. And then hopefully in the cycle that we learn something as we go through this arc of time right now. You know, um, I mentioned Trayvon and um, and um, Emmett Till 
and I can even um, reference Eric Garner, mm. uh, what happens to him in New York. Um, I made this piece and I'll share it with you. It's a piece called Rosa Sparks. Mm. And um, it's a linoleum cut I made. It's 36 inches by 50 inches in scale. And in this image, there is a representation of Rosa Parks sitting on the bus. And then I, I put things symbolically in there. Like one thing you would note that the seat underneath her is buckling. It's like the weight of her body. She's like heavy hmm. because I want to tell you she's not going to be moved. Hmm. That bus driver is going to get up and tell her to give up her seat and she's going to say no. So I had to say that visually. So I said it by the buckling of her seat. And then I did some other things that psychologists would tell you. If you're talking to me and we're in a deep discussion and I'm standing like this with my mm-hmm. arms folded, <laughs> I'm just waiting for you we to know. so i can tell you what i want to tell you because i ain't listening to what you're saying right all right so she's got her arms folded she's got her legs folded and her head is turned in such a way she's not even looking at him Hmm. but then i put other elements that are are, that are girding her body and that's when i went to paul in the book of ephesians in the book of ephesians he basically says that, you know, in, in chapter six, that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and mm-hmm. things in high places. And he encourages follow, followers and believers to put on the whole armor of God. And so that armor of God is, of course, laid out in terms of a helmet, in terms of a breastplate, in terms of protection for the feet, a double-edged sword. And so what I did was I took the letters A-O-G and I put them onto the shield and I put it upon her body. And then I put her helmet of like a halo around her head, protecting her mind. Then I put a breastplate on her. Then I, I shot her feet with protection. And I got these elements of armor on her body as she's sitting there. And then there's two people right behind her yelling at her, telling her to give up her seat and go to the back. Meanwhile, um, if we think about historically what happened in that moment, what Rosa Parks' life becomes a spark, at that moment, uh, she gets arrested. She goes to jail, and that's when the whole movement starts, and they refuse to ride buses in Montgomery, refuse to. um, uh, So the people started carpooling. And they started walking, they rode bikes, they did whatever they could not to ride those buses. For over a year, those buses rolled up and down the road virtually empty. So money upon money is being going down the tubes because they're paying for all these gas to keep these vehicles, paying all these people to keep them riding these buses. And so the system relented. They changed the system and they allowed people to sit anywhere on the bus. All right. But then outside the bus, inside the same composition, I show you the windows and they got this kind of tessellation pattern of people walking and marching. But mm-hmm. one of them is holding a sign and a sign says, I am on it. Again, that was a biblical scriptural march or movement, you know, just like what, you know, what the Israelites do to with Pharaoh. You know, it's the same concept. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's just happened in America. And so the sign has I am, but it alluded to the I am a man signs hmm. that were being held by the sanitation workers to basically say, no, I'm, I'm a human being. But I took off the amen part and I just left it with I am because that's what Moses said, you know, went before God and he said, well, what should I say? You know, what should I say? Should I call you? He said, well, tell him I am sent you. Hmm. That's why I believe that sent those people. God sent them to do that work. God inspired those the people to get together to mobilize. God inspired the churches to work together in community to spread that message in the word and get the people to mobilize, go out into the streets to do the work. That's part of our role. 
as as Christians. That's part of our role as people of faith. That's part of our role as followers of God is to is to continue to mobilize, to continue to spread the truth and spread the gospel. And we got to work together in order to make it happen. We can't do this isolated. You know, it is a collective message that we all believe in and we come together in community, you know. And so that's all in that image. And then you move to the back of the image. I got Michael Brown. He's got his hands up. Don't shoot. I got Trayvon with his hoodie on. And he's holding the Arizona T in, in, um, in his hands. And then I got the letters K-O-O-L on his shirt. Because that's alluding to a pack of cigarettes. Right. That's what Eric Garner, who says the same words that our brother said in Minnesota, I can't breathe. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's all on the back of the bus because I'm saying that yes, Rosa Parks did that within their time period in 1955 when she when she made that 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 fateful day and that fateful move. But right here in the 2000s, we got our own issues on the back of the bus that we still have to grapple with. So we're still in the same bus together. Mm-hmm. We're still traveling down these same roads. You know, um, you know I'm thinking about, um, you know, uh, what's that famous song by, um, you know, How Many Roads Does, Must a Man Travel? You know, oh, John Denver. You know, it's the same, it's the same concept. Yeah. You know, it's like. Oh, no, sorry. It's um, Bob Dylan. Bob Dylan. Thank you. Bob <laughs> Dylan. <laughs> but it's, it's, again, it's that same, how many roads must we travel down? Right. You know, and, and again, that's these roads that we keep going right. down over and over again. And that's why his music, music profoundly spoke to that moment of, of history. You know, I don't think of Bob Dylan as like one of the greatest singers. Um, <laughs> I don't think anybody is not. <laughs> nobody classifies him that, but yeah. it's not about the, 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 the musical voice. It's about the spirit behind it. Right. It's about the, the 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 depth and the meaning and the 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 purpose of the words, you know. Um, I mean, I think about a song like Strange Fruit, you know, it's it's one of those songs, it's a dirge in the second line altogether, mm. you know. Southern trees bears a strange fruit, blood on the leaves, blood at the root, mm. black bodies swinging in the southern breeze, strange fruit hanging from the poplar trees. I mean, oh, and that was written by a Jewish writer. Yeah. Who who passes that on to, you know, Billie Holiday, which makes that her song that she got uh, tons of flack for to sing. But she wanted to sing that truth. And I, I align myself with those artists of mm. the past that and as a Christian, that that is that calling is that I'm going to say things that are not going to make people feel comfortable. I'm going to make images that's going to make your skin crawl sometimes. I'm going to make things that's going to make you squirm and say, I don't know if I can put that on my wall in my house, but I challenge you, put it there. Hmm. And when people walk into your home, have those conversations because the conversations are being held one way or the other. Right. Either they're being held at your kitchen table and held, or held at the dining room table. Are they being held in bars? Are they being held on the street corners? Are they being held in the morgue? They're being held somewhere. Because the story, the narrative is all around us and we can't escape it. And so therefore, let us speak the truth. Let us speak about these things that we're going to exegize and bring out um, the, the nature, God's nature, and have that uh, populate our lives. And as I hear you describe this piece of art, it, to me, it just rings like this is, this is what a prophet is doing. Um, as he's trying to point out to Israel left and right 
it's not because one person is racist. It's not one because one person is immoral. It's not because one person did one sin that God has this problem with you. It's because it's soaked into the entire community and it's bubbling up in everything that you organize and do. Um, And so they're just prodding and poking every way they can to get people to realize yeah. No, you righteous the righteous one in the village is not going to turn it around. The whole the whole shebang has to be turned around. So it sounds very much like I mean, and Jesus coming into the temple. Mm-hmm. He's not like you, Fred over there. What are you doing? You're wrecking this whole thing, right? <laughs> He's flipping all the tables. He's whipping people, it. knocking things out of people's hands. Yeah. Well, Steve Prince, this has been riveting, fascinating, enlightening, all the above. Uh, thank you for your wisdom uh, on your and your art as well. And we'll put links to that in the show notes. Indeed. Indeed. Thank you so much. You've been listening to the Biblical Mind Podcast, exploring the deep structures of Christian scripture. For more, visit the magazine at thebiblicalmind.org. Subscribe to this podcast at all the usual places so you never miss an episode. 